Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Tune in to the Coronavirus Crisis Update, a dynamic podcast miniseries from CSIS. Each week, join Stephen Morrison, director of the CSIS Global Health Policy Center, and Andrew Schwartz, chief communications officer, as they host leading experts such as infectious disease specialist Dr. Anthony Fauci and former director of the CDC, Dr. Julie Gerberding. Don't miss the latest analysis. Go to CSIS.org to subscribe. Lie down, my friend. Let me toast your bones till the tiredness disappears and all the abuse of winter melts away and you feel alive again. Florida. When the last people These margins are insane. Here in Florida, the number of early votes reveals a potentially worrying statistic for President Donald Trump. And these total numbers are just crazy. We haven't seen this before. The number of Democratic voters who've cast their ballots early tops Republicans by more than 350,000. So we are in a kind of a different world here. Florida is, as it almost always is, right in the middle of the national story in elections. You've got all the trends shaping American politics just happening right next to each other and kind of by coincidence in ways that almost completely cancel each other out. And so the state is trapped in this permanent state of toss up, coin flip, choose your metaphor status. Right. So what happens like we had in 2000, the margin was literally 537 votes. The Florida Republican Party has this decades long experience and advantage with absentee ballots. They poured time into it and money into it figuring out how to maximize their vote using the mail. And then President Donald Trump kind of just blew it all up with a few tweets earlier this year. This is going to be a fraud like you've never seen. Maybe a little bit more than a few. Right. (laughs) But this has now totally shifted the voting patterns in the state and how the parties run their election operations and also how Mark Caputo goes about analyzing what's really happening on the ground. Right. I, I don't really have the same frame of reference that we had before. Because of that, you know, I mean, if you could pick an emoji for how, like, Republican Party pros in Florida reacted to President Trump demonizing mail-in voting, it would have been like the, the facepalm emoji. Like, ugh, like, what are you doing? This is Nerdcast. I'm Scott Bland. I'm Mark Caputo, a senior writer for Politico. I'm based in Florida. Florida, where you've lived and reported for most of your life. Which is kind of advantageous in this circumstance because this is Trump's must-win state. Right. So covering Florida is covering the presidential election. Yeah. I mean, you're covering one of the most important states in what a lot of people are saying is the most important presidential election in at least recent memory. I mean, I know people say that every four years. Right. But, uh, <laughs> I think everyone's in, in agreement that the stakes are high and you've got a great vantage point for looking at it. Right. But part of the problem with the vantage point is because of the pandemic, you know, because we're still kind of sheltering in place, albeit not as much as we did at the beginning. I have two kids who are going to school online. 
And so I have to be home. So my ability to kind of get out and talk to more real people is really attenuated. Mm. So unfortunately, this election, more so than others, I'm covering much more virtually. And I, I kind of don't like it. Yeah, I think I'm hearing that from a lot of reporters. You know, people get into this because they don't want to be sitting behind the desk, right? And they, they want to be out there seeing with their eyes, hearing with their ears. Right. It just helps to talk to real people. So, you know, being in Florida, living in Miami, right, I have like suddenly a bad termite problem. So I had like the termite guys come out to give me estimates on tenting it. And I was so happy to be able to talk to like real people and ask <laughs> them their opinions about who they're voting for and all of that. One of the, the people who came over was a, a young Cuban-American who was 30 years old a registered NPA, a no-party affiliation, independent voter. It was the day after the first and perhaps only debate between Trump and Biden. And I asked him, like, who are you going to vote for? And he hemmed and hawed and didn't want to answer the question. And that's because he wants to vote for Biden. Huh. We keep hearing all of this stuff about, oh, there's a hidden Trump voter out there. And maybe there is. But I don't see a lot of, like, shy Trump voters out there. I mean, they're waving flags, they're having car caravans, they're having, like, boat parades. And what interested me about this young man is that he was a hidden Biden voter. So I do wonder if we're going to see kind of the photo negative of 2016, where the race and the undecided voters to the degree they were there broke late for Trump or were kind of hidden voters for Trump. I wonder if there are hidden Biden voters who are going to break late for Biden and who might not be showing up in the polls just as a lot of those Republican Trump voters didn't show up in the polls in 2016. Got it. It's Florida, so it's always a pretty good bet that it's essentially going to be a tie race or essentially a race that's within the margin of error. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the remarkable things about Florida, right? Is that the the nation as a whole kind of swings back and forth pretty wildly. You know, you've got uh, uh, you know six, seven, eight point swings nationally between elections, and Florida is just always kind of like stuck there right in the middle, right? And, you know, a couple points this way, a couple points that way. It's like the state is, is like constitutionally incapable of having anything other than like a one or two point race. Right. So what happens, like we had in 2000, the margin was literally 537 votes. Then we had in the gubernatorial race, Jeb Bush won by a blowout in 2002. That was 12.8 percentage points. George Bush won five percentage points on his re-election in 2004. Uh, Charlie Chris then won by seven percentage points. And then you start to see the real decline if you graph it. Obama in 08, 2.8 points. Scott in 2010, 1.2 points. Obama in 2012, 0.9 points. Scott in 2014, one point. Uh, Trump, 1.2 points. DeSantis, 0.4 percentage points in 2018. And Scott in his Senate race was less than a quarter point. So it just gives you a good idea. Like since 2010, we've been basically inside the error margin. We're, we're a one point state. The wild thing about this is that over the last 12 years, Florida has changed incredibly. The population has gotten much bigger. It's gotten uh, more diverse, which, I, you know, people have been talking about forever is kind of heralding this democratic shift. But there have been these other just countervailing shifts pushing exactly as hard in the other direction the whole time. Right. You know, there's a few things. One is we are becoming less of a white state. And if voting patterns remain as they have been, eventually that's just going to catch up with the GOP because it's a heavily white party, both in Florida and nationwide. That said, you know, the smartest and dumbest thing said in politics is it's all about turnout. And what the Republicans have just been better at doing is turning out their base when you look at, for instance, just an election by race, actually, let me see if I can draw up the thing here so I don't actually get the numbers wrong. I, um, hang on. There we go. 
three, two, one. In 2016, 64% of the registered voters in Florida were white, but 67% of the ballots cast were cast by whites. Mm. Uh, Blacks also overperformed their registration, 13% of the registration, 15% of the ballots. But Hispanic voters were 16% of the registration, only 13% of the share of vote. And those kind of classified as other, which is about 7% of the electorate then, or the registered voters then, though they were 7%, they cast 6% of the ballots. So, you know, whites just kind of keep overperforming. And this is just those registered. I'm not getting into the issue of voter suppression, which is probably an entire podcast. And this has just kind of haunted the Democratic Party like time after time after time. One of the things in Florida that we're seeing now is Biden does kind of have a marginal lead. And I like to call it a marginal lead because, yeah, four points sounds like a lead, but it's still within the margin of error, these polls. And those are kind of public polls. Some of them are really bad. The more private polling from inside the parties is like anywhere from Biden four and less. Uh, Lately, they had uh, about two to four, like in Democratic Party polls. And then Republican Party polls, the last ones they took before Trump's rather disastrous debate performance, they had Trump up one. Uh, They haven't polled since, so who knows where they are now. All kind of within the, like, uh, Florida belt of uncertainty, right? That, like, narrow range. Yeah, the cone of uncertainty, right? Yeah, Yeah. where where all Florida elections end up. In fact, that's the one thing that we didn't, in in a year of black swans, right? In the election season of black swans, we didn't have a landfalling U.S. hurricane in Florida this time. That would have definitely kind of thrown a real monkey wrench in things as far as kind of understanding how people turn out, how they vote. And the way in which they perceive the president, because generally speaking, when there's a disaster, especially a hurricane, and George Bush showed this in 2004, when the president shows up as the commander in chief and starts passing out money and comforting people, that usually benefits him. I feel like we should probably be knocking on some wood right now. So I want to just like step through a bunch of the things that have made Florida like especially interesting and unusual this year. And honestly, we could almost like jump to election night and go backwards. Obviously, Florida has been exceptionally important in pretty much every election going back to, you know, a pretty long ways, right? But this year, people are talking about it being an even more important signal than usual on election night, because Florida counts its ballots quickly, even though it votes a lot by mail. And we'll talk about that more in a moment. But Florida has this culture built up around voting by mail. So it knows how to count them really quickly. Obviously, it can count the election day votes really quickly. And while we're seeing delays in some states... Florida, you know, if someone does manage to win it decisively by like more than a point, we will know potentially on election night. And, and, and that's even made its way somewhat into some of the strategy that folks are talking about, especially on, on kind of the pro-Biden side about whether they want to invest more there in the hopes of getting this kind of decisive early signal on election night. Right. You know, there's a distinction between counting ballots and tabulating ballots, right? Counting votes and tabulating votes. And so Florida election supervisors in the 67 counties, they count the absentee ballots when they come in. They load them into the system, but they don't tabulate them. On election night, they flip the switch and tabulate them. And it spits out a number. A big number. (laughs) A a, a big number. Like as of Wednesday morning, 1.9 million people in Florida had already voted. Wow. Right. And we're probably looking at an election of about 9.8 million ballots cast, maybe a little more. Well, what's really interesting, outside of just this historic number of ballots that have been cast three weeks out, Democrats cast 967,000 of them, and Republicans only 564,000. Which is completely weird for Florida. Totally. It used to be Republicans dominated absentee ballot voting. Now, from the Obama years on, Democrats have been catching up more and more. But never three weeks out before an election were Democrats ahead of Republicans just even by, like, one absentee ballot vote. 
they sure as hell weren't ahead by 400,000 ballots cast. So Democrats are really pouring it on here. Now, the Republican side of things is like, hey, they're exhausting their high propensity voters. And we, the Republicans, have about 400,000 high propensity voters left in the wings. So they're going to show up early in person voting and then on Election Day. And indeed, like in 2016, an interesting stat is Hillary Clinton was ahead by 247,000 votes on Election Day morning because of early and absentee votes. But then she wound up losing by about 113,000 because so many high propensity Republican voters showed up and voted for Trump. So there is that. But these margins are insane. And these total numbers are just crazy. We haven't seen this before. So we are in kind of a different world here. And for someone like me, what I'm going to be looking at is, okay, on October 19th, the big counties begin early in-person voting. Then we're probably going to start seeing Republicans pick up the pace and what they call counter-balloting, like dropping off their absentee ballots that's already filled out at the counter of the Supervisor of Elections Office or just turning up at the early voting stations and, and casting their ballot more traditionally. So, you know, stay tuned. It's, it's going to change. And this is all a reflection, of, again, you know, Florida, like right in the middle of this big national story. And you mentioned, you know, the, the Florida Republican Party has this decades long experience and advantage with absentee ballots that Donald Trump kind of just blew up with a couple tweets earlier this year, right? Well, I guess more than a couple. <laughs> and that has totally shifted the voting patterns in the state, how the parties run their election operations, and also how folks like you go about analyzing what's what's really happening <laughs> On the ground. Right. I, I don't really have the same frame of reference that we had before because of that. You know, I mean, if you could pick an emoji for how like Republican Party pros in Florida reacted to President Trump demonizing mail in voting, it would have been like the, the face palm emoji. Like, ugh, like, what are you doing now? You know, sort of in fairness, so to speak, to Trump, like he eventually worked out a more nuanced position on his opposition to mail in voting. It was universal non-requested absentee ballot voting that he was against. But, you know, that sort of information took a while for him to arrive at and for it to arrive in the minds of a lot of Republican voters. The Republican Party of Florida was so nervous about that a few months ago. They wound up sending out absentee ballot request forms to voters with a picture of a Donald Trump tweet saying absentee ballot voting is okay. And they, they blurred out the rest of the tweet because it was so confusing that they had to doctor it so that they could make sure to still turn out voters to vote by mail. So like by the Republican Party's own reaction, it was a problem for them. It is a problem for them. And, you know, again, it doesn't mean they can't win. Right. But they and on the flip side, Democrats, too, they're basically running a completely different you know, election month strategy than they have in the past because of it. Yeah, they are just they've really made a huge push to just get everyone to vote by mail. Uh, of course, there can be a problem with this. Voting by mail is the easiest way to screw up your vote. If your signature doesn't match on file, if you forget to sign the envelope, those are just kind of two big killers. I think there was like 35,000 spoiled ballots that were cast absentee in the just-ended August primary. There was no statewide race. But it gives you an idea, like we could be looking at as many as 100,000 spoiled ballots in the general election if those same patterns hold true. Mm -hmm. And again, you know, with how close the state always is, could be important. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that, that could be the ball game. I mean, you know, generally speaking, first-time voters and a lot of uh, younger voters who are not accustomed to casting absentee ballots, which are generally more Democratic voters, are more likely to screw it up. So that is something that the Democratic Party is kind of privately worried about. Yeah. Another just crazy thing going on about, you know, with, with Florida in the center 
this election. It's just the, the sheer amount of money getting poured into the election. And I feel like nothing typifies this more than the fact that Mike Bloomberg can pick a single state to drop $100 million into. And Florida can absorb that because it's so big. But it, like, <laughs> right. you know, I, I imagine if you turn on the TV right now, it must be, you know, you, maybe occasionally you can catch a few minutes of whatever program you're trying to watch in between all the ads. Yeah. As of early October, we had a record in Florida, almost $250 million in TV ads bought by Team Biden, so to speak, and Team Trump. Biden's winning that one, $142 million to $101 million, by the way. But it really gives you an idea of, you know, how much... TV still matters in Florida. Florida has 67 counties, but we have 10 media markets. That's usually the best way to analyze the results. And especially if you're in that I-4 corridor, which extends from Tampa Bay through Orlando and into Daytona Beach on the East Coast, that's where people are probably just ready to shoot their televisions or or just (laughs) not want to watch Jeopardy or Wheel of Fortune because there's just so many ads on. What, What is Bloomberg doing with all that money? Obviously, he's putting a bunch of it on TV. Right. He's put a bunch of it on TV. He's also seated this uh, Florida Rights Restoration Council, which is trying to pay off the fines and fees of former felons to help them register to vote. The Florida legislature had basically passed a law that made it more difficult for former felons to register to vote if they hadn't paid off their fines and fees, which is sort of in keeping with the promises of the people who had placed a constitutional amendment on the ballot in 2018 that legalized these people for voting. But the problem is, is that some counties don't know how much people owe in fines and fees. So in this Kafka-esque situation, we're like, okay, I'm a former felon. Uh, now I have to pay off my fines and fees in order for me to register to vote. So you go to the county, like, okay, how much do I owe? And they're like, well, we don't know. We're like, okay, can I register to vote? Well, no, you haven't paid off your fines and fees. Like, you know, it's the Kafka state. But the, I mean, even that's been the subject of some legal wrangling, right? Of course. Yeah. I, you know, it's, it's gone all the way up to the District Court of Appeal, which wound up ruling in favor of Florida. Coincidentally, it was largely Republican-appointed judges who ruled in the state's favor and Democratic judges who ruled that it was basically an unconstitutional poll tax. Uh, I would like to say, though, that for all of the promise of, like, you know, 1.4 million former felons who could be registered to vote, is the Democratic Party and its boosters have traditionally been kind of like these gamblers hoping on a new hot horse or a deus ex machina that's going to come in and make a difference. This year, it was supposed to be former felons. In 2018, it was supposed to be Puerto Rican voters who had moved from the island after Hurricane Maria, and we're going to take out holy hell on Republicans because of Donald Trump's handling of the hurricane. Well, that didn't really happen in 2018. You know, we just talked about the election results there earlier in the midterm. And, you know, here, obviously, because of some clever, so to speak, maneuvering by the Florida legislature, the GOP-led legislature, uh, the felons thing didn't come to fruition either. I mean, basically, the big problem that the Democratic Party's had is its base, relative to Republicans, doesn't show up in the same proportions. If they did, this would be a lot bluer state. But they don't, so it's a lot redder state than it looks like. Well, let's talk about a group that really does show up in Florida, and that's seniors. Sure. Hold on for one second. I just want to, I want to see where my notes are on that. Hold on for one second. And we will be right back. So I've written this Tune in to the Coronavirus Crisis Update, a dynamic podcast miniseries from CSIS focused on the science and policy implications of the COVID-19 outbreak. 
Each week, join Stephen Morrison, director of the CSIS Global Health Policy Center, and Andrew Schwartz, chief communications officer, as they host experts such as infectious disease specialist Dr. Anthony Fauci, former director of the CDC Dr. Julie Gerberding, author John Barry, and other public health leaders such as Dr. Margaret Hamburg, Dr. Peter Hotez, and Senator Patty Murray. Don't miss the latest analysis. Go to CSIS.org to subscribe. Um. Okay, recording again. So part two here. So it was a question about seniors. So we're back. Um, okay, so Mark, the senior vote has kind of become an unlikely source of competition or even strength for Joe Biden here. And seniors are an important voting block everywhere in the country because they vote like no other age group. But Florida captures and concentrates that in a way that that you don't get in a lot of other places. You have these super communities like the villages and wherever. Like, tell us about the senior vote in Florida and the chase for it this year. Yeah, I I don't think it's a secret that Florida has been known as God's waiting room. In fact, I think Governor (laughs) Ron DeSantis had referred to it uh, that way while talking about COVID, which, you know, caused its own set of sparks. But one of the things that we see in Florida's voter rolls is that seniors just, they disproportionately vote at higher rates. And one of the reasons for that is Florida has such a good absentee ballot system. It's just very convenient for seniors to vote. And Florida's economy is in part just built around seniors. You refer to the villages, which I think is the United States' largest retirement community. And it's just a heavily Republican one. Uh, Now, that's in part just because I think you know, seniors have a tendency to be a little more conservative than younger people. But also, there is just kind of this phenomenon that we're seeing in U.S. politics or in our society in general where we're kind of self-segregating. And all of a sudden, you saw with the villages as it grew in size over the past decade is Republicans just increasingly saw it as just this gold mine for votes and paid more attention to it. So now, like, the villages, about only 30 percent of the vote there is Democratic. But if you start looking at the political dialogue that's happening in the villages, there are a number of seniors there for the first time that we've seen who are becoming incredibly vocal, incredibly democratic, and in this case, incredibly anti-Trump. So kind of rattling Republicans, which just a few days ago, there was like a golf cart caravan of democratic voting seniors in the villages who ceremoniously went out to cast their absentee ballots or countervote. You know, that's kind of symbolic. And again, 30 percent of the villages is Democratic. But nevertheless, it kind of symbolized like that portion of the Democratic base or that portion of seniors are no longer kind of taking it lying down. Now, if you can use a part for the whole and you look more broadly in the state, Biden in a lot of polls, including some internal Republican Party polls, is winning the 55 plus vote or he's only trailing by about four points. If that's the case, he's going to win the election if all else holds equal. Now, of course, that's a big, you know, if. Sure. And I mean, and that that's just like a huge shift, right? right. I mean, even just in terms of the focus of the campaign, right? I feel like in recent years, Democratic strategists and people around the party have almost started talking about the senior vote as something they have to overcome in other ways as opposed to compete for. And the, that's very much not the case this year. Yeah, that's just a symbol also of Joe Biden's campaign, which has guys like Mike Donilon and Anita Dunn. Anita Dunn, by the way, who has a place in Sarasota, right? They had a pulse on this election and this electorate that all of the other Democratic strategists, the other 15, 18, 19 campaigns, 
and all of woke Twitter just didn't get, which is kind of what I was talking about earlier. Like, you can't ignore major portions of the electorate and hope to win. So they kind of dispense with this idea of like, you know, we're not going to be woke. We're not going to reach out too much to young people. And a lot of the messaging of Joe Biden's campaign from the get go has been kind of geared toward or hit the right notes for senior citizens. And that's in part like it's no secret, like Joe Biden's a senior citizen. He knows how that generation thinks. Now, a good example of that is my mother-in-law. She lives in Tampa or she lived in Tampa Bay. She now lives in the Jacksonville region. She voted for Obama twice. She voted for Trump. And when Joe Biden had announced his candidacy, she was all in for Joe Biden. Love Joe Biden. So there, there's also some residuals there for Joe Biden with seniors. But if you also look at his ad buying nationwide, he's embarked these massive nationwide broadcast television buys. And the spot he's running in some of the heaviest rotation is a senior's ad that's running on Wheel of Fortune and Jeopardy, which seniors watch. And I think we're seeing the results of that in the polls in both Florida and nationwide. That's really interesting. I want to hear just like, uh, you know, a few of the stories you've picked up, like from your your experience covering these big elections in Florida. We were talking the other day, you mentioned the, the 2000 recount and Palm Beach and everything going on there. Can you tell us uh, what, what your experience voting and what your ballot looked like? Oh, well, in 2000, I was a county hall reporter for the Palm Beach Post. I lived in West Palm Beach. In fact, I lived one block north of Southern Boulevard, which is what the president takes to get to Mar-a-Lago. I voted at the Greek Orthodox Church right there just before you get to the Palm Beach Bridge or the Bridge to Palm Beach. I was one of the few people who actually voted for Pat Buchanan. I liked his messaging on free trade. At the same time, it kind of made me a loony in the eyes of the Republican Party because free trade is great and to the Democratic Party as well. But one of the things that surprised me is that I realized at the time something was wrong when I walked in the polling station because it had what was called an open-faced ballot or what became known as the butterfly ballot. It was a book that opened up and on the left side and on the right side, you had the different candidates for president. There were like 10 or 12 or something. And then the lines that would point to a hole in the voting machine where you were supposed to punch with your stylus and punch through the chad in your punch card ballot. So I was one of the few people who actually searched out Pat Buchanan and voted for him, but it was really close to Al Gore. And it was difficult to figure who it was. And I remember actually, I'd never voted on a punch card ballot before. I remember punching it out and actually holding it up and looking at it forward and backward, which we later saw was part of the standard practice of analyzing the recounts. Those iconic photos, right? Yeah. <laughs> like the guy from Broward with a big eye, like looking through the, the, the magnifying glass. So I actually did that just as just like, what the hell is this thing? So that, that was kind of a real eye opener. And I remember the next morning, you know, after it had been a late night, we're like, oh, my God, who won? And, and it's all kind of coming down in parts of Palm Beach County. It just ushered in like 37 days of real uncertainty. And I think that election really established Florida as kind of the consummate swing state, but also really made our elections even more partisan, if you can. I, th- I think 2000 is kind of a watershed year there. Sure. So you're deep into this, right? You know Florida backwards and forwards. Is there anything that particularly annoys you about Florida's role in the spotlight, in the national spotlight during election years? Like the, the biggest tropes or misunderstandings that non-Floridians are, uh, are subject to? Oh, it's, you know, it's just people being annoying on Twitter when you discuss it, like, <laughs> you know, but then again, you know, it's just like, you know, pick a topic and you're going to find a bunch of nuisance trolls. But really the kind of misunderstanding of how Hispanic voters work. Like, for instance, if you mention what the, the Cuban margins are for Trump, like they're really high. And of course, suddenly, you know, Jim from Oklahoma is an expert in the Cuban vote in Miami. And he can tell you, well, they always, you know, vote Republican. Well, they didn't always vote Republican like this, right? 
Or they say, well, the Puerto Ricans are going to cancel it out. Well, Puerto Ricans have a lower turnout rate. So you kind of don't know what you're talking about. Um, so that, that's kind of a fundamental misunderstanding. The other thing that you really saw, which is a problem on Twitter, is a total misunderstanding by the left or the far left or the, the, the democratic socialist left, the Bernie left, Rose Twitter, of like socialism is not like a helpful thing to campaign on in Florida. Like if you, if you want to lose the Hispanic vote, which can differ from the Hispanic population, if you want to lose the Hispanic vote – you know, start saying kind of like, you know, Castro, yeah, he was bad, but, you know, hey, provide a free health care, right? That's like, hey, Mussolini made the trains run on time. I mean, my next door neighbor uh, had to flee Cuba on a plane when she was a little girl in Operation Pedro Pan. Uh, my other neighbor, who's also Cuban, his family had to flee Cuba. And perhaps even in a more cruel twist of history, his maternal grandparents, before then they are Armenian, they had to flee the Turkish genocide in Armenia. So they had to flee twice. So like the deep scars of totalitarian socialism that's left in a place like Miami makes it very difficult for someone to say, hey, I'm a democratic socialist and it's not so bad. There was like a fundamental misunderstanding of how that would affect people in Florida. So, you know, tell us about your process for like breaking down this enormous state that you cover. I'm a believer in polling, but I'm also a believer in aggregating polling, breaking it down by what they call the party breaks. Like what percentage of Republicans is voting for Trump? What percentage of Republicans is voting for Biden? Same thing for Democrats, same thing for independents. So I usually take those from various public and private polls I get. I average them together. And then at this period of time when actual votes are rolling in that we can see how many Democrats are casting ballots, how many Republicans and independents. I usually kind of apply those in there just to kind of get a, a general sense of who's winning so far. There's a few ways to analyze elections like anywhere, but here it's really important. Like one, I look at the polling for white votes. If the Democrat is getting what Hillary Clinton got in 2016, if 32% of the white vote, he's going to lose. The next thing is Hispanics, but I usually don't rely on large public polls with Hispanics because in Florida, the Hispanic community is essentially bifurcated between Cuban Hispanics and non-Cuban Hispanics. Cuban Hispanics vote heavily Republican. Non-Cuban Hispanics vote generally Democrat. So you need large sample polls for those. And then I try to get a feel for, okay, how are black voters going to turn out? Like Black voters are generally, you know, about 9 in 10 are going to vote for the Democrat. But if you're going to have a large black turnout, that's going to make a real difference. If you have a small black turnout, that's also going to make a difference, albeit in the other way, for the Republican. So race, uh, party turnout, and then toward the end of the early and absentee voting periods, you start to look like, okay, how's Miami doing? How are the large urban counties doing? But also I start to look at like Lee County, which is Fort Myers. That place has turned into just a Republican gold mine. And as Florida has become more suburban, you've seen like the power of the major urban areas, Miami, Palm Beach, Fort Lauderdale, Orlando, Jacksonville. You've seen them kind of decrease in relative power. And now we have to look more holistically at the whole state. Yeah, I feel like Florida keeps providing us with these object lessons and like not treating one particular place as like, you know, the must win area, right? You know, if you'd gone back in time, right, and you'd said that in 2018, the, the Democratic statewide candidates were going to carry Duval County, that would have been game over, right? Right. Except it, it, just the way things move and shift and constantly this give and take, it, it doesn't work that way. Well, I mean, a great example of this is when you, you know, we have 67 counties here, and it's just really hard to judge it by how the 67 counties are doing. So because the campaigns orient themselves around media markets, which is the area in which a TV station broadcasts, 
there's 10 of them in Florida. It's a lot kind of easier to, to look at prior election results and kind of look at how that's going to apply currently. And like, this is really an object lesson to what you're talking about. So in 2016, Hillary Clinton won the Miami media market, which includes Broward. She won the Miami media market by 580,000 votes. That was her margin, 580,000 votes. Obama had won it by 473,000 votes in 2012. So she did 107,000 ballots better than Obama did in Miami. Wow. And she still lost. Yeah. But why? Well, you start to see, like, Trump had a more kind of holistic strategy. He had more suburban appeal. In Tampa Bay, Trump's victory margin over Clinton was seven percentage points bigger than Romney's was over Obama. Now, Trump won it by 190,000 ballots. Romney only won it in 2012 by 39,000 votes. You know, so Trump did 151,000 votes better than Romney did in Tampa. And then in combination with some of these other media markets, he won the state. Yeah. But, you know, when I was looking initially at the returns, I was like, holy shit, I think Clinton's going to win here because to what we were talking about earlier, those absentee and early votes are loaded in quickly. You start to see the South Florida urban counties and her margins in Miami were just off the charts. But then you started to see, okay, what's happening in like Polk County? What's happening in Pinellas County? What's happening in Hernando? What's happening in Lee County? What's happening in Sumter County? These kind of smaller counties that are redder, and they they started really performing. I think Collier County, something like that, they almost had a 90% turnout rate. And that's a blood red county. It's Naples, right? Like th- th- there was astonishing turnout from the Republicans in 2016. All right, that's our show. Our producer this week is Adrian Hurst. Our senior producer is Jenny Ament. And our executive producer is Irene Noguchi. Our illustrator is Bill Cookman. Subscribe to Nerdcast wherever you listen, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you like what you hear, check out some of our other podcasts. There's Politico Dispatch, Politico Energy, and Pulse Check, just to name a few. And coming soon, a brand new podcast series from Politico, Global Translations. The way to bring this country to its knees is to choke off our supply. Imagine for a second our globe as a series of supply chains. Food, everyday goods, and raw materials zooming across the world in a single day. But what if those global supply chains suddenly ground to a halt? It's not just about finding which vaccines work. It's about preparing the manufacturing and supply chains for those. And if one little detail in those supply chains goes wrong, we might not be getting vaccines to people when they desperately need them. The global pandemic showed us what it's like when we can't get the things we need. Masks, personal protective equipment, even toilet paper. There's simply not enough raw materials. We have to figure out how to get this right. There is a bigger story behind the scarcity. We need to fight back against China. A bigger picture with implications for our future. That's going to be a major challenge. On this season of Global Translations, where has globalization fallen short? And where do we go from here? The 90s called, and their economics is not what we need now. I'm Louisa Savage. I've spent my career thinking about the global forces that shape our world. Join me and other journalists from Politico. A new season of Global Translations, coming October 21st. Presented by City, a leading global bank. We'll talk to you again next week. Thank you so much for listening.